2: Welcome to Go Green Radio, everybody. So glad that you could join us and definitely glad that our guest today could join us. Today we have Richard Heinberg on and he's got a brand new book out called Snake Oil, How Fracking's False Promise of Plenty Imperils Our Future. And I know that a lot of our listeners watch... Uh, cable news and if it doesn't matter what channel you watch i'm sure that you have all seen some of the ads put out by the american natural gas and oil industry and basically those ads boil down to don't worry america we've got plenty of of gas we've got plenty of oil and we're creating jobs you're Good, you're off the hook. Stop worrying about energy. And today we're going to be talking about um, maybe the other side of the coin of, of this uh, of this presumption. And we're going to be talking with Richard about why maybe we need to question what we're seeing in all of this PR effort. Welcome back to Go Green Radio, Richard. So glad to have you.
3: Well, thank you, Jill. It's great to be with you again.
2: Well, talk to us about, I mean, writing a book is no small task. It takes a lot of energy. So you've got to have some goal in mind when you sit down to do it. Why did you write this book?
3: Well, as as you say, for the last uh, year or two, we've been seeing this avalanche of public relations about uh, the oil and gas industry and how fracking is going to solve all of our energy problems. And something just didn't seem right. To me about that, and and so my organization, Post Carbon Institute. Um uh, hired out the data on all sixty five thousand fracked oil and gas wells in the u s we, uh, we We paid a, a company in texas to to get us the data on the initial production rates uh, decline rates over time uh, the geography in each of each and every one of those wells where they 're located and we did a hard analysis of what's really going on in fracking country, and we found that the data just do not support the claims that are being made, and it it uh, it really changes the whole picture about what's going on.
2: Well, and I know that uh, you know any time we see information on fracking, a lot of times uh, it seems to be industry talking points that we're seeing, and there's not uh, as much. Uh, uh, data-driven information on the other side. Sometimes when we see anti-fracking protests or speakers coming out against fracking, um, it's not always data-driven. And so I think that the book really does give a lot of of hard numbers around that. Now, you know, in, in the opening of your book, you talk about peak oil. And, you know, some of our listeners know what that is. Some of them may not be familiar with it, Let's, uh, let's talk about what peak oil is for a moment and how that relates to the subject of fracking.
3: Right. Well, this is a discussion that's been going on in the energy world for uh, for some time. It, it really got going in its modern form back in the late 90s when uh, a couple of veteran petroleum, ge- petroleum geologists published an article in Scientific American where they said that uh, regular conventional oil uh, is probably going to become more scarce and expensive over the course of this this past decade. You know, up, up until around 2010-2015, uh, they said world oil production is going to hit a, a plateau or, or peak and then start to decline. And the significance of this, of course, is that our world runs on oil. All of our transport energy virtually is, is from oil. And transportation is essential to trade and commerce of all kinds. So a world oil production peak could translate into a global economic, uh, crisis like none we've ever seen. Uh, so this was, this was the basis of the, of the argument. And on one hand you had, uh, these independent and retired petroleum geologists not not just these two that I mentioned but but actually a whole army of them and on the the other side of the debate were the the heads of the oil companies themselves who were uh, hired you know public relations organizations to make the claim that uh, you know there's plenty of oil out there reserves are always increasing we're always finding more and 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 so on so don't don't worry don't uh, don't make any effort to reduce your dependence on petroleum everything's fine well the, the actual evidence over the past decade has has tended to bolster the the peak oil argument uh the oil industry is spending about twice as much in exploration and production as it was a decade ago they're drilling about twice as many wells. And yet actual world crude oil production, just regular conventional oil, has flatlined since about 2005. So for the past eight years, uh, the oil industry is basically not producing any more oil than it, it, than it did before, even though oil prices have skyrocketed from you know, in 1998, when that article came out, oil was selling for ten dollars a barrel. Today, it's more like one hundred and five dollars a barrel. Uh, so even with very high prices, the industry isn't able to bring any more product to market. That suggests something really fundamental has changed in the in the oil industry, and it was it was forecast uh years ago.
2: Well, and it is, uh, you know, just to further that, that point that you just made, wouldn't it make sense that if oil was selling as high as it is right now, if they could bring out more and sell it at that price, that the industry would do that? You know, uh, any any consumer of any goods, for those of our listeners who are, you know, uh, not a part of the, the industry or, or maybe not even, you know, in corporate America, um, you know, think about any kind of – Consumer item that you buy, you know, if uh, if <laughs> you know if coffee was uh, you know the thing that, that you buy and and all of a sudden uh, you know it went from a dollar a cup to six dollars a cup with no uh, relief in demand. If everybody wanted and would pay six dollars a cup, which some people do uh, <laughs> for that coffee, wouldn't it make sense that more and more Companies would want to bring more and more coffee out um, to sell it at that high price if they could, which is exactly what they've done. Or,
3: or, or somebody would step up and, and uh, offer, you know, a, a two-dollar coffee, uh, a, a cup coffee, if if they could afford to do so. The thing is, the uh, the, the high prices are largely, not entirely. Surely, th- th- there is some speculation going on, but but the high prices are largely due to soaring costs in the industry. Uh, regular conventional oil back in the 40s, 50s, and 60s was very cheap to produce. These days the only plays that are open to the the petroleum engineers and geologists are ultra-deep water or tar sands or heavy oil or polar oil or tight oil. All of these require much, much higher levels of investment. So the industry actually needs prices in the range of $100 a barrel in order to justify going out and looking for more oil. And the way we know this is that the whole industry is mired in debt, They've had to take on enormous amounts of debt in order to cover the increased costs of exploration and production, and the, the the oil majors, the big companies like Shell, Exxon. If you if you take the top ten oil majors, their total oil production over the last decade has fallen by 25 percent. So that tells you they're, the the easy oil is gone. The, the This is a this is a new era for the oil industry, and they're not happy about it. Well,
2: even still, you know they are saying production is up, and and it's kind of been a a finger in the eye to people who have been talking about you know peak oil for all this time. Um, Do you feel like? Peak oil is a dead issue. Is it something that, uh, you know, has been discredited or, or overshadowed to the extent that um, the people who advocate a viewpoint of what to do in the era of peak oil have been discredited? Or do you feel like that's still um, something that, you know, that we can talk about credibly?
3: Right. Well. Well, first of all, it's important to point out that production is up for the U.S. and Canada as a result of uh, the tar sands and the tight oil plays in North Dakota and Texas. U.S. oil production is higher than it's been in over a decade, uh, and it's, it's actually still increasing right now, although the rate of increase is starting to uh, t- taper off. So the oil industry actually does have some data with which to uh, attempt to refute the, the peak oil uh, argument. But what they've done is they've taken that data and they've run with it. They've uh, they, they, There have been articles almost on a daily basis for the past year saying that peak oil is a dead issue, that uh, it it was the peak oil theorists were were wrong in the first place and so on and so on. Very seldom do these articles actually go any further than citing increasing production from from the tight oil plays. They don't talk about overall conventional oil production or the amount of investment required or any of the things we've been talking about in this show so far. Uh, They they take a, a few numbers out of context and blow that up into a uh, a, a miracle of uh, of production increase so that the US is about to become Saudi America and will be oil independent we won't have to rely on impor, imports anymore the data simply do not do not back up those kinds of claims and that's why i thought it was so important to to uh, put the put the information together in a dispassionate way and get it out for the American public.
2: So uh, back to, you know, the needs of the American public, a lot of people don't realize what fracking actually is. Can you explain what that process looks like um, and and what exactly we're talking about?
3: Sure. Uh, First of all, fracking is, is some elements of fracking technology go back years and, and decades. But, uh, it's being applied now so, in such a widespread way because basically the regular conventional oil is, is gone. Uh, and what's left are tight reservoirs, usually shale rock, and when I say tight I mean the rock itself is uh, very impermeable, it has low porosity, so the oil or gas that's in the rock just wants to stay there. It doesn't want, if you drill a wellbore into the rock layer, the oil and gas just wants to stay where it is. It doesn't want to flow into the wellbore as it would in a conventional oil well. So what the industry ha- has figured out how to do is to get the uh the oil and gas out by fracturing the rock so that more of it can flow uh into the wellbore and ultimately up out of the well. And they do this by pumping in well first by um, by drilling horizontally, drilling down maybe a kilometer or so, uh and then and then angling the well bore so that it ultimately becomes horizontal and then drilling outward another kilometer or so. Uh, and the reason they do that is to have more contact between the well bore and the oil or gas bearing layer. So you're drilling laterally into the, into the fuel bearing layer. And then, uh, the next step is to case the well with with steel pipe and then uh, lower down a perforating gun, which will, with explosives, pump holes in the steel casing. Then the next step is to pump in mm, three, four million gallons of water laced with chemicals like slickening agents and proppants to prop open the uh, the the uh the, the uh, fractures once they're made in the rock and this water is under uh immense pressure so that's what fractures the rock the, the water is pumped back up out of the well and then oil or gas can flow up and uh and be retrieved so th- this is a, a a pretty highly technical process Mm-hmm. It involves lots of um, materials, water, chemicals. It also involves lots of infrastructure. Something like two thousand tractor-trailer truck trips.
2: And Richard, to- that's what I want to talk about. I want to talk about you know the expense, the risk, the process. Um, in just a few moments, after we uh, take a quick commercial break. Sure.
3: So sure don't go away, good.
2: folks. We're going to be right back with much more Go Green Radio. Don't go away.
1: news opinions your voice counts call toll-free 1-866-472-5787 1-866-472-5787 voiceamerica.com all around the outermost rim of the shield he set the mighty stream of the river oceanus creating achilles shield in homer's the iliad book 18
0: rachel carson in the sea around us said
1: all Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%, 43%, or 14%? Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Covanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh, yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Covanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com.
2: Welcome back to Go Green Radio. So glad to have you all listening in. If you're just tuning in, our guest today is Richard Heinberg. He's got a brand-new book out called Snake Oil, How Fracking's False Promise of Plenty Imperils Our Future. And just before we went to break, we were talking about the process of fracking. Richard, talk to us about the expense of fracking. What does it cost? Um, what are some of the risks involved? Kind of give us that that piece of the puzzle.
3: Sure. Well, uh as I was saying, it is a, a technically daunting <clears throat> and costly operation. A typical shale gas or tight oil well might cost in the range of 8 to 10 million dollars to drill. Now that's uh, several times as much as a regular conventional uh, oil or gas well. So that's one of the reasons that the companies that are involved in this procedure uh, tend to be mired in a lot of debt. It just costs a lot to get into the, the business. And mostly we're not talking about the, the majors, the, the Shells and Exxons and BPs. We're talking about s- smaller companies like Chesapeake, Devon, XTO, Range Resources, and and so on, of which there, there are dozens of these companies, typically they, they, they will go out first early on, and, and in most cases this has already happened years ago, they will uh, lease lots and lots of land for drilling. Uh, once they have an idea of the areas where the oil or gas might be located, they, they will lease um, <clears throat> uh, hundreds of thousands, even millions of acres of land uh which will require payments um, to the the landowners okay so that's a big expense right there and then uh the uh uh the, the lease agreements require <clears throat> typically that the 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 land has to be drilled if the lease is going to remain in effect <clears throat> has to be drilled usually within 3 years or maybe 5 years <clears throat> excuse me so that puts uh uh the onus on the companies to actually go out and, and produce the stuff. Well, with natural gas, that's been a problem because that's meant that they've had to drill faster than they really should have for economic reasons. That drove the price of natural gas down in the U.S. from about uh, $12 a thousand cubic feet to uh, more like $3 or $2. And at that price, the, the companies weren't making enough money and haven't been and still aren't making enough money to cover the cost of operations. So what many of these companies like Chesapeake have done is go back and sell off leases to other companies, uh, often to the big companies like Shell or Exxon or to foreign nationals, uh, Chinese oil companies, and, and so on as a way of making money. They're not actually making money. Uh, drilling for and producing natural gas They're making money on land lease transactions For the most part And also, you know, of course, sales of stock shares and so on But all of this requires That they create the illusion of abundance They have to, with, with clever public relations Create the illusion that this is the next big thing that there's an enormous abundance of natural gas out there and enough for decades and decades so that everyone who's an investor will want to get in on the game and thereby prop up the shares of these companies that are actually losing money.
2: So what's the truth about the the illusion of abundance?
3: Right. Well, as I was saying earlier, we did the numbers. We, we bought the, We bought rights to the data and crunched the numbers. What we found is, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> there are small core areas in each of these plays, and when I say plays, I mean the the, the geographic or, or geologic formations like the Marcellus uh, under. Uh, Pennsylvania and, and uh, New York State and West Virginia, or the, the Eagle Ford play or the Barnett play in Texas, so on. There are uh, half a dozen to a dozen of these. In each of these plays, there there's a small core area, usually several counties in size, that is relatively profitable to drill and where production is fairly abundant. But if you get outside those small core areas, then uh, the typical initial production rate per well is much lower, and that production rate tends to fall off very rapidly, sometimes as much as 60 to 80% in the first year. So the numbers that the industry is touting for shale gas and tight oil are derived from taking the very best data from these core areas and extrapolating that to entire plays as though of uh, each and every well that's drilled will have the same characteristics, and the data just do not support uh, that. Well,
2: and, and clearly this is catching up with, with the industry because just this week in Bloomberg, there was a story, uh, the title was Shale uh, Grab in U.S. Stalls as Falling Values Repel Buyers, and um, and so that that's cause for alarm because a couple reasons. First of all, um, a lot of utilities, since natural gas prices have fallen in the last couple, three years due to fracking, um, a lot of utilities have begun replacing their coal baseload generation plants with natural gas, right. the idea that it was cost-efficient to do that, um, you know, th- industry like manufacturing industry has been very excited because powering their plants with natural gas uh, versus coal has allowed them to meet clean air standards at a price they can afford um, during, you know, the recession that was, that was just critical. And so natural gas has been a big boon to them. And, you know, the president himself, president Obama has been telling us that we've got a hundred years of natural gas now due to fracking. Um, so this information puts us on very shaky ground, Richard. What What are your thoughts?
3: Well, the, the current low the current low price of natural gas is is a blip. It can't continue for for very long. If it does, the companies that are producing gas will go out of business because they're losing money on every cubic foot of gas that they sell. We have that straight out of the mouth of uh, the uh, CEO of ExxonMobil who said, we're losing our shirts on natural gas at this price. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the industry has a plan to deal with this problem, which is natural gas exports, LNG, which is liquefied natural gas, uh, putting mm-hmm. it in tankers and selling it to the Europeans or the Japanese or the Koreans. Uh, and, of course, those folks will pay a lot more for it. Prices for natural gas are 12 to $17, a 1,000 cubic feet in these other countries, whereas they're hovering around $3 here. So what this will do, of course, is to raise the price of natural gas for U.S. consumers. If, uh, if companies can get more for their product by selling it abroad than they can by selling it here, guess who they're going to sell it to. Yeah. So the, the, the goal of the exercise, again, is to raise natural gas prices. And what that will do, of course, is to completely undercut all of the advertised benefits of natural gas uh, soon it will no longer be cheaper to burn natural gas than coal in, in uh, utility power generation. Uh, soon uh, the chemicals and plastics uh, industries, which have come back to the U.S. as a result of low natural gas prices, will flee once again to places like uh, Morocco or Algeria, where natural gas is, is cheaper. So this has been, it's it's been a kind of shell game, uh, an exercise more in public relations than in sound economics.
2: Well, and the thing that bothers me most, I mean, I am a mom, and so I look through the lens of uh, motherhood many times when I'm, you know, approaching sustainability topics on a wide variety of of issues. But, you know, when our president and the industry are saying, don't worry, we've got 100 years of supply, and then we're exporting that supply, then I feel like you know the the public officials are being disingenuous with us that somehow this uh, boom is going to benefit the U.S. Um, if we aren't even going to be able to afford to purchase and consume our own domestic natural gas products, right? And it, that's a big problem
3: for me. Right. In the whole debate about natural gas exports, there are two facts that get almost no mention. One of which is that the U.S. is still a net natural gas importer. (laughs) Uh, So we don't have a surplus of natural gas to export. The other fact that isn't being mentioned is that production of natural gas in the U.S. has leveled off. It's not increasing. It's actually uh, since about November, December 2011, U.S. natural gas production has flatlined. So... There's, there's no good practical reason for exporting natural gas, other than raising prices.
2: And, and, I mean, are you seeing any evidence whatsoever that the manufacturing industry, the utilities are prepared for this eventuality at all?
3: Well, they're, they're arguing – they're up on Capitol Hill arguing uh, as loudly as they can against the natural gas export terminals – and uh, they it, so far, it appears that their political clout is not as, uh, as strong as that of the oil and gas industry. What
2: is going on legislatively at, at the moment? Tell us a little bit more about you know, the public policy ar- around this.
3: Uh, well, there, there are several uh, natural gas, export terminals that have uh, been proposed and uh, one is in in process now it's been permitted and so on and the others are are uh, are being uh discussed with the idea of issuing permits and if uh, if they go through we could have as many as half a dozen to a dozen uh natural gas export terminals and of course these are these are themselves somewhat risky because if 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 uh an LNG export terminal or an LNG tanker explodes it's a, it's a horrendous thing and uh, you don't want it to happen near your city
2: Mm-hmm. Well, and, and we're going to talk a little bit more about some of the environmental risks and public safety risks associated with what's going on in the natural gas industry and fracking in just a few moments. We're going to take a quick commercial break, but when we return, much more with Richard Heinberg. So don't go away, folks. There's more Go Green Radio right after this.
1: News. News. Opinion. News. Opinion. News. Opinion.
0: A Current Life with Jimmy Gould airs Fridays at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, noon Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel.
1: Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain spine really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck.
2: Welcome back to Go Green Radio. So glad to have you all tuning in. If you're just joining us, our guest today is Richard Heinberg, and he's got a new book that I highly recommend. His his work is always um, something that just blows me away with the way that he's able to approach uh, topics that can be often very controversial, but in a very data-driven, uh, even-keeled sort of way. And his new book is called Snake Oil, How Fracking's False Promise of Plenty Imperils Our Future. And I just find it it's so um, it's it's not that you know, it's, it's purely academic it's very interesting and great to read but it's so well written in terms of uh, the data to back up the anecdotes and I really appreciate your work Richard um, well, one you. of the things you bet one of the things that um, some of us are hearing you know it's not always on mainstream media outlets every day but some people have caught some of the YouTube videos and the um, you know every so often coverage on cable news about some of the environmental um, risks and concerns that people have around this fracking process. And I'd love for you to talk about that and, and give us, the again, the data behind these concerns.
3: Sure. Well, first of all, we should anticipate higher environmental risks with uh, this form of, of production simply because the... Uh, Uh, we're producing oil and gas from lower down on the resource pyramid. Uh, This is a concept that every uh, geologist knows. Uh, The resource pyramid uh, is common to, you know, whether we're talking about iron ore or, or copper or oil or gas or coal, the very top of the pyramid are the highest quality, easiest to access resources that take the lowest investment and as you drill down into the base of the pyramid, the the amount that's of of the uh, of, of the resource that's present in the Earth's crust increases as you go to lower and lower quality resources. So this is what we're doing with uh, with oil and gas now. We've finished off the cheap, easy stuff, and we're drilling down into the harder to get uh either more dispersed or uh in, in lower quality uh like tar sands or in harder to to uh, produce from rocks like tide oil and shale gas. That requires more effort and it also entails more environmental risk. The, the lower you go into the resource pyramid, the more environmental risk. And again, whether we're talking uh, deep water oil or tar sands or polar oil or, or tight oil, it's inevitable. So what are some of those environmental risks? Well. Uh, One of them has to do with the wastewater from fracking. Uh, We talked earlier about how something like 3 or 4 million gallons of water laced with chemicals have to be pumped down underground in order to frack reservoirs. Well, what happens to that water once it's done its job? It has to be taken back up to the surface, and, and well, what happens then? Well, it can be put into a containment pond uh, left to evaporate, Uh, but of course there are problems with that. It can escape from the pond. There can be leaks or animals can be exposed to it, wildlife, Uh, or it can be sent to a municipal water treatment plant, but water plants are just not prepared to deal with, uh, with some of these chemicals, which are trade secrets. We don't even know what they are, or with the radioactivity that the water has picked up deep underground so that 's not a good solution. It can be uh, injected back into uh, empty underground uh, uh, oil or gas wells. But then what we 're doing is is just taking millions of gallons of good fresh water out of water wells or, or rivers and lakes and polluting it, and then injecting it underground where it can never be used again, which is a big problem if you're living in a place where fresh water is, is not abundant. And a, a lot of the places where fracking is going on, like Texas and Colorado, are you know water-stressed places. So there are really no good options in, in terms of dealing with uh, wastewater from fracking. And that's just one of the environmental problems.
2: What are some of the others? I know that um, at one point there were citizens in Pennsylvania complaining to the EPA that they felt like their well water had been contaminated by fracking.
3: What was that all about? Right. Well, this can happen if well casings are compromised. Now, remember when the when the well is, is drilled, the first step is to put in a, a casing, a steel casing. And that uh, theoretically isolates the, uh, the upper rock layers that might uh, have uh, the water table present from the, <clears throat> the deeper rock layers where the oil and gas are and from where they're flowing. So theoretically, if all goes well, there's no contact between the oil and gas and the water table. But things don't always go well. Uh, Well casings fail. Now, how often that happens is a point of contention. The industry claims it only happens 1% of the time. Uh, Independent uh, peer reviewed studies have suggested it's much more frequent than that, uh, something more like 6 to 7% of the time. If we're talking about tens and hundreds of thousands of oil and gas wells, then 6 or 7% Uh, frequency failures represent thousands upon thousands of instances of uh, compromised, uh, water tables, uh, water wells gone bad and so on. Now how often this has actually happened so far, we really don't know. And the reason we don't know is that when, uh, landowners complain about health impacts or about impacts to their, their land and their water to the companies, there's usually a settlement Mm. and uh, one of the terms of the settlement is always a non-disclosure agreement so the 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 landowner may receive you know a check for a hundred thousand dollars or a million dollars in in compensation for their their health or or uh, or or water problem but they can't talk about it and uh, and so therefore it's very difficult to compile data on how often this actually happens
2: one of the things I've also read, Richard, about this issue is that even when uh, residents test their well water and they find evidence of, you know, chemicals that weren't there before or, you know, everybody I think has seen YouTube videos where people turn on the faucet in their kitchen and they can light it because it's got methane in it, right. um, you know, and it explodes. Um, you know, one of the things that the industry will often say is, well, you can't prove that anything we did has caused you know, that that contamination of your water. And part of the way we can't prove it is because they don't have to disclose the chemicals they're using to break open the shale formations to extract the gas. So we can't necessarily link their chemical brew in, in their wells to the chemicals showing up in water. And I think that's a failure of public policy. I'm not sure what you think about that, but um, that seems like a no-brainer to me.
3: Right. Well, this is not an accident. It actually goes back to uh, 2005 when Dick Cheney, who was vice president at the time, and of course formerly, before he became vice president, he was uh, an, uh, an executive with Halliburton Corporation, which is an oil and gas services company. And so in 2005, Dick Cheney um, uh, was able to lobby effectively for an exemption to the Clean Water Act and some related uh, regulatory uh, acts, and the exemption stated that if you are drilling for unconventional oil and gas in the United States like shale gas or tight oil, you're allowed to use chemicals and you 're not required to disclose the nature of those chemicals. Uh, this is called the, the the Cheney loophole and it's it is one of the one of the legal factors that has allowed the fracking industry to to flourish over the past few years. Uh, And it's one of the reasons that fracking is less likely to take hold in other parts of the world.
2: Mm -hmm. Well, you know, here's the thing, and I get that, but it's been almost a decade since then, and we've had, you know, a complete change of administration. What's holding up the EPA or the current administration from overturning that loophole?
3: you know that 's a good question, and um, it really appears that the oil and gas industry has has the ears not only of uh, of the Congress but also of the executive branch and the The evidence for this uh, came out uh, a couple of weeks ago in, in an l a times article they They had done some research and and they found that uh, uh, evidence that uh, epa Field agents, scientists in the field working for the EPA had found lots and lots of evidence of environmental harms from fracking. Uh, things that we talked about earlier, problems with, uh, uh, with wastewater disposal and pollution from wastewater and also, uh, compromised well casings and, and pollution of wells and groundwater and so on. They took that information back to their uh, superiors and and no further action was taken. It was the story was killed from uh, orders at the very top of, of the EPA. Wow. And you know it, it really appears that the administration is uh, wants fracking to continue because they've sort of uh, they benefit from the perception that natural gas is replacing coal and therefore we're doing something about climate change our our co2 emissions are declining because we're switching to natural gas therefore if fracking is making this happen then we have to support fracking
2: well and and isn't that just the the perfect conundrum that we can sorry guys there's always a trade off we're going to fight climate change because it's cleaner to burn natural gas than coal as if that's you know the only option Um, but we also might export some of that natural gas so you can't use it here in America so that may or may not pan out and in order to get to that natural gas we may have to contaminate some of our water that seems like a false you know
3: trade-off yeah Um, there there are so many contradictions in all of this it's just mind-boggling uh, and that's that's why it's you know pretty c- clearly it's the whole uh, the whole roadshow of, of fracking is headed toward a, a, a bust up pretty soon.
2: Well, and I almost feel like you know, and I, and I know that it's very in vogue and has been forever to blame the Bush administration for everything, and I'm not letting anybody off the hook there, but. Um, that's getting pretty tired. When uh, you know a lot of these problems and a lot of this fracking has happened since that administration was out the door, and I just feel like um, that that line of thinking doesn't doesn't help. It doesn't advance, and I think it, it fails to point uh, the, the 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 problem out. And that is that maybe this isn't a partisan issue, and it isn't uh, something that you know, it can be explained just simply by politics and I think that it's something more insidious than that and and I think it's time for us to really wake up and and not believe that just because we elect this person or that person that our problems will be solved but rather look at the industry influence overall in American politics and not just one party or the other we've got to take a quick commercial break but when we come back we're going to talk about the promise of jobs and can we trump everything uh, that we're saying about fracking and, and the risks involved by saying It'll create jobs. Don't go away, folks. There's much more. Go Green Radio right after this.
1: Talk, talk, talk. That's all we do is talk. If you'd like to talk, call us toll-free right now at 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. That's it. That's it. VoiceAmerica.com. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26 percent, 43 percent, or 14 percent?
2: Welcome back to Go Green Radio. So glad that you could join us. We're talking about an issue that, um, gosh, I just feel kind of frustrated about, to be perfectly honest. Sometimes I see commercials about American natural gas and American oil production, and I see this on every cable news station um, out there, and I just feel like, it's really not a complete picture or an accurate picture of what's going on when we talk about uh, the quote-unquote abundance of natural gas in America right now, um, that the price can not stay so artificially low for long and some of the promises of of all of this natural gas abundance um, doesn't even pan out when you look at the data for some of the production wells um, outside of the, as Richard was talking about, the core um, sweet spots of, of where drilling is taking place when you get outside that little epicenter that the production estimates drop off dramatically our guest today if you're just joining us is richard heinberg author of a new book snake oil how fracking's false promise of plenty imperils our future you know Nothing imperils our future like a society of unemployed, able-bodied people who are frustrated. And the recession has been tough um, for a lot of families in America. And one of the things that the natural gas and oil industries are promising through this, this fracking boom um, is not just jobs, but also economic boom for the communities where fracking is taking place. Richard, what, what are your thoughts on that piece of their argument?
3: Right. Well, there there is a boomtown phenomenon to all of this. There's no question about it. Uh And boomtowns, of course, go way back in history. And famously, in the, the early days of the oil industry, you know, in, in uh, Texas and Oklahoma, there were places where, uh, you know, somebody would find a, an oil field, and and within. Days or weeks, thousands of speculators and drillers would show up and stock shares would change hands and fortunes would be made and just as quickly lost. And then, you know, the oil would peter out and and a decade or two later, the place would be a ghost town. Mm -hmm. Well, we're seeing the same thing happen today in the fracking fields, only it's speeded up because the decline rates for these wells are so high. So yes, there is an initial spurt of economic activity, but if you analyze that, most of the high-paying jobs are going to out-of-town folks, the the, the specialists in, in drilling, the petroleum geologists and engineers and and uh, field workers who uh, fly in, frack, and fly out. Uh, yes, there is uh, an uh, economic benefit to the community over the short run, but what that usually show ups, shows up as is higher rents, which means that people on fixed incomes in the community, retired people and so on, suddenly find they can't afford to live there anymore and are forced out. Meanwhile, the, uh, the environmental risks and harms often show up worst for farmers, and in a lot of places in fracking country, farmers are finding, you know, they just can't, uh, they, they, the, the harm to their livestock, the water quality, and so on is so bad that they they have to pick up and move. But picking up and moving, if you're a landowner in these areas, mm. is a big problem because yeah. who's going to buy your land? So very often uh, property values uh, plummet. And, and then uh, the jobs, the, the local jobs, very often are going to well i mean pole dancers and and uh prostitution uh, are flourish in boom towns gambling and so on uh often drug use uh, sores and crime and then the costs to the community uh in terms of road damage alone can be higher than the, the in, uh, increased tax revenues uh it takes something like a couple of thousand uh tractor trailer 18 wheel trips per well to drill and frack a well, and that causes an enormous amount of road damage when you're talking Mm -hmm. about thousands of wells. Uh, And so the the numbers have come in, and in places like uh, Texas and Oklahoma, it's clear that the cost to road damage has been higher than tax revenues to local and, and state government.
2: Interesting. You know, in the book, you also say that the shale boom is tied to Wall Street investment banks. Can you
3: explain that for us? sure yeah well all of these the companies that specialize in uh, in shale gas and tight oil and fracking uh, again chesapeake devon xto range and so on they they're heavily in debt and so they, debt service is a big problem for them and and uh, so they are constantly um, in working in collaboration with wall street investment banks so it's in the interest of Wall Street investment banks to pump up the prospects for these companies so that they can sell more shares in the companies. But then when things do go bad, and as is happening now, you know, revenues aren't high enough to cover cost of operation, well then... Wall Street gets to handle the mergers and acquisitions. They make out one way or the other. It's not their money that's being invested. It's, it's usually money from pension funds or, or, or uh, mom-and-pop investors, whatever. So... You know once again, this is we 're seeing the same thing play out we 've seen over and over over the last few years. This is the bubble du jour you know we had the the, the, housing uh, bubble. the asian bubble the the dot com bubble the real estate bubble, and now it 's the fracking bubble mm-hmm.
2: you know the last chapter in your book is called Energy Reality, and I want to spend the last three or so minutes that we have left in the show talking about um, the declining energy return on investment, and what we need to be doing. let's let's get to some action. What we can tell our listeners we need to be doing in order to address this energy reality.
3: Yeah, well, first of all, we have to change the conversation about energy in this country back to where it was and even a little further than it was. The, you know, what the industry has changed the conversation from one of how are we going to get off of fossil fuels to stop climate change and to, uh, you know, get off of foreign oil, which that's where the conversation was just a few years ago. Now the conversation is all about, well, what are we going to do with this tremendous abundance of oil? You know, we're going to be Saudi America and uh, 100 years of cheap natural gas gas and all this, which is pure hype. Uh, That's taken the heat off the industry. But, you know, I have lots of friends who are petroleum geologists and who work in the oil and gas industry. They're not monsters. Uh, They're supplying a product that all of us use on a daily basis. However, this is an industry that has to go away. Over the course of our lives and our children's lives, the oil and gas industry, the fossil fuel industry has to downsize to the point where it just goes away. Otherwise, we have no chance of of survival as a civilization or maybe even as a species with climate change. And in fact, these are depleting non-renewable resources anyway. So it's just a question of, of when we wean ourselves off of these fuels. And the sooner we get started, the better. That means developing alternative sources of energy, means developing alternative modes of transportation and rethinking our industrial agriculture system, uh, it means more about how we use energy in some ways than, than it does about where we get energy. Although we do need to develop solar, wind, and other renewable energy sources as quickly as we possibly can, we also need to reduce the total amount of energy that we're using and especially uh, uh, our transport energy because there, there there's no... Easy, quick alternative. It's not that we, it's not as though we can quickly substitute another source of energy for oil. So we need to rethink transportation and agriculture first thing.
2: Well, and I'd sure love to see all this money that's being invested in fracking, um, at least some portion of it going into renewable energy. As you mentioned, these fossil fuels, and fossil fuels are oil, coal, and natural gas, are finite. At some point, they will be depleted to the extent that we can't keep growing an economy, whether it's our national economy or a global economy – on this fuel and we've got to look at investing in infinite energy resources and so uh boy folks this is the time to start speaking up and and advocating on behalf of of our Posterity to ensure a secure energy future for the U.S. now and, and long term in the future. Richard, thank you for joining us. Thanks to all of our listeners for joining us. We're going to be here same time, same place next week with Go Green Radio. Till then, have a great week and do something in your life to go green.